may this be a once and for all message that you cannot out the cross. If Nebuchadnezzar has a chance to be saved, so do all of you and so do I. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Well, we have finally arrived, I have finally arrived to preach my favorite chapter in all of scripture. I've been preaching for nine years, but I've never preached on Daniel chapter four, and I shared in a weekly update uh, this past week that this is my favorite chapter in all of scripture. Because last week I shared with you that even though we've been hearing a lot of bad news with King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three, by chapter four, spoiler alert, we discover that he is brought to faith. But the one thing I didn't share with you last week, which is perhaps even more amazing, is not only did he come to faith, but he is also one of the roughly 40 or so authors of Scripture. That's right, he has authored Scripture. Daniel, he wrote chapters 1, 2, and 3, and 5 through 12, but chapter 4 is written in Nebuchadnezzar's own Words. And so let that just be an encouragement to anyone in this room who has this idea in their mind that because of the things that I have done, there is no way that God can accept me, not after what I've done. May this be a once and for all message that you cannot out the cross. If Nebuchadnezzar has a chance to be saved, so do all of you and so do I. What an incredible story. And it's just amazing to me. Think back. What, who is this King Nebuchadnezzar? He is the one who ransacked the temple, the one who destroyed Jerusalem, the one who killed Daniel's parents, the one who castrated him, the one who exiled all of these 10,000 Jewish boys, the one who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and threw them into the fiery furnace. He's the same guy who also authored the passage of scripture that we are about to read together. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. While you're looking for that, um, I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at today by reminding ourselves of how we got here. One of the things that we see through Nebuchadnezzar is that defeat is difficult, but success can be fatal. Defeat is difficult, but success can be fatal. And we see this in Daniel chapter 4, that Nebuchadnezzar is suffering from a case of success. And it reveals something about the, the pattern of our own human hearts, something that every single person here wrestles with every single day. And it is this, hubris and pride keep us from walking with God. Hubris and pride keep us from walking with God. And so I want you to see the progression that we've been walking through in these first three chapters in this uh, boxing match between Nebuchadnezzar and God. And as we do that, I have the privilege of sharing with all of you the artwork of our very own Taryn Van Dopp. Uh, she has been drawing pictures every single week 
and Pastor Adam has been sharing them with me, and they're just so cool. So I asked permission if I could share it with all of you, and I recognize that as I share the pictures, you're probably not going to hear anything I have to say because the pictures are so cool, but who cares? We're going to do it. So here's what we see. Round one. Let's take a look at this picture. Isn't this so cool? There's Daniel. He's standing, and then the little buddy right next to him, he's like, dude, sit down. What are you doing? So cool. So we see from chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, he ransacks the temple in Jerusalem. He takes 10,000 back as slaves. Daniel and his three friends, they defy the king's order to eat the meat and the wine, which is desecrated, and it does not fit their Mosaic law, the Torah law. And so they say, may we please not eat this food? And then the one who oversees Daniel and all these Jewish men, he says, okay, I'll give you a 10-day trial. And by the end of it, they discover that Daniel and his friends are healthier and more well-nourished than any of the other teenagers in that cafeteria, in that hall. And the chapter ends with the words of Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, the king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So here's what we see with Nebuchadnezzar. He's intrigued by uh, Daniel's God through the witness of his followers, but that's it. He's intrigued. So Daniel's God is now on the map through the faithful witness of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, but there's no personal allegiance. That's all we see in chapter one. Round two, take a look at this picture. They're all so cool. Daniel gives the ability to do what none of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men can do, to reveal and to interpret all the mysterious dreams that he is having, and one in particular, a dream about a gigantic statue which is made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and then iron mixed with clay. And Daniel not only has the ability to interpret or to see the dream even before King Nebuchadnezzar tells him about it, but also the ability to interpret that dream. And so once again, just like chapter 1, chapter 2 ends with Nebuchadnezzar's words. And he says this, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. So in other words, surely your God is better and stronger and more powerful than even my gods, the Babylonian gods like Marduk. And so now we see that Nebuchadnezzar, he's not only intrigued by Daniel's God, but he's on the map. And he's equal or greater to even the gods that he has been worshiping his entire life. But still, there's no allegiance. There's no worship. How do we know that? Well, that is chapter 3. Round 3, we see that the very next thing that Nebuchadnezzar does is he erects a golden statue of himself. And if you recall chapter 2, the gold represented Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, but the silver and the bronze and the iron and the iron mixed with clay, that represented all other nations. But this golden statue is all gold. In other words, it's his way of saying, God, I see your sovereignty and I raise you mine. My own plan, my schemes, my desires, my goals. It is pure defiance. He has no interest in following with the sovereignty 
of God, and he erects this altar, this statue in his own image. And then, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get caught up in the backwash of Nebuchadnezzar's foolishness. And Nebuchadnezzar says, all y'all, y'all need to bow down and to worship this golden image. And they say, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. And he says, well, for you, I'm going to throw you into the fire. And as they get thrown in, they are not burned. And there's a fourth individual in there who looks like the son of the gods. Is it pre-incarnate Jesus? Is it an angel? We don't know for certain, but we know the plain main message is this, that through the person and the work of Jesus, not even a hair on our head will get singed because he has paid the price. Because he has brought salvation to all who believe. And once again, chapter 3 ends with Nebuchadnezzar's words. I'm not sure if you picked up on that, but every single chapter ends with the words of Nebuchadnezzar. And he says this, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their very lives rather than to serve or to worship any god except their own god, for no other God can save in this way. And now we're getting somewhere. He's not just intrigued by Daniel's God. He's not just amazed by Daniel's God. He's not just on the map, you know, kind of equal to the Babylonian God Marduk and all the other pagan gods. He is above all of these gods. And he goes so far as to say, if anyone of the roughly million people who are here speak disparagingly against the God of Israel, then may you be chopped up into pieces and left for dead. If anything, he's original, right? He's just always using the same methods. And so we will see in, in round four that Nebuchadnezzar is still fighting with God. So take a look with me as you read and recognize something. This is Nebuchadnezzar's voice in the first person. It is written like a public profession of faith, like a God story, a testimony, and he wants the whole world to know what God has done for him. Here's what we read. I, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So I shared with you already, the way that this uh, opening three verses is shared is kind of like uh, a presidential or a prime ministerial address to the nations. But it's also, more significantly, like a public profession of faith. He wants the whole world to know what God has done for him. And what I think is kind of cool, that there, there's probably a time in human history in which Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, they sat down together and, and they said, you know, I'm not sure who's going to read this book. I'm not sure how widely it's going to be distributed or shared, but we got to share what God has done. And the two of these guys sit down together, they take ink in their hand, and they put pen to page. And here we are. We're reading 
the story ourselves. And so I want to lay out for you three things about God's story of salvation that we have to understand in terms of our own faith story as well. I put it this way in your note sheet. Number one, God's story of salvation needs to be shared publicly. It needs to be shared publicly. We see that in verse one. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth. The same language we picked up last week, and I said to you, anytime you hear people, nation, language, something epic is about to occur. Well, what's the epic thing here? Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the universe who worships pagan gods, now follows the Lord of the universe. That's the epic note here. And so it is written as a public profession of faith. He says, this is too good for just a couple people to know about. The whole world needs to know what God has done. And then right on the heels of that, at exactly the same time, God's story of salvation is always also profoundly personal. Profoundly personal. Look at verse 2 again. He says this. He tells, uh, Neb wants the whole world to know what the Most High God has done for me. For me. It's the message of salvation, the, the gospel on shining display, a royal announcement of good news for the whole world to hear and to know that the Lord is God. He is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And he transforms lives in such a way that they can have something that Nebuchadnezzar never had in chapters 1, 2, and 3. What is that? Profound peace. Deep and profound peace. And I shared with you that to the extent that you understand that God is sovereign and on his throne, you will have peace too. Peace now, but also peace in the future, come what may. Come what may, because we know how the story ends. And finally, for the first time, Nebuchadnezzar gets it. He says, if God is sovereign on his throne, and ultimately he is about his glory and my good, of what do I need to be afraid? This is a, a message of the gospel for me. It transforms my life as well. And then number three, God's story of salvation heralds his kingdom that never ends that never ends. Look again at verse three. He says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And so this theme has been at the forefront of the book of Daniel for all four chapters. Do you remember what Daniel said um, two chapters ago in Daniel chapter two? He said this, praise be to the name of God forever and ever, Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. Seasons. He deposes kings and he raises up others. Now, to some degree, that's very easy for a slave to say because he's not the king, right? He deposes kings. He raises up others. Praise be to God. Not to diminish anything that Daniel is saying here. It's all true. It's just easy when you have nothing else going for you. It's much harder for the king to say that, isn't it? because he's the guy who's going to lose his lofty position. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar proclaims the same thing that Daniel proclaimed 
in chapter two, he recognizes God is sovereign on his throne. He determines who kings and queens and officials and prime ministers and presidents will be. He is the one who is ultimately in control. And so hopefully by now, we see one of the plain main things that is trying to be communicated in these first four chapters. It is this, earthly kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. The kingdom of God stands forever. And when we know that God's kingdom stands forever, we have peace. Yes, we can have concern about what's happening in our world. And we can step in because we believe that God is about transforming all of his creation, every square inch of his creation, politics, creation care, uh, teaching, education, parenting, everything is touched and impacted by God's sovereign plan. So we step in, but not with angst, not with angst, not when we know that God is ultimately in control and that he is sovereign over all things. We enter into it with peace, incredible peace, because as I've been sharing with you for four years, God wins. God wins. And because God wins and we're on his team, we say that we win too. And it gives us peace. So now that we understand everything that's been happening in the background with Nebuchadnezzar, we got to ask ourselves, what happened between the last verse of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4? What happened to this guy? What ultimately led to his conversion? Well, let's pick it up here at verse 5. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, like I shared with you already, success, or uh, uh, defeat can be difficult, but success, success is the most difficult of all. And as I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind, they terrified me. So as was the custom, and if we had time, we'd keep reading through all these verses, we would see that once again, Nebuchadnezzar brought all the wise men before him, and just like the previous times, none of the wise men were able to interpret his dream, except for Daniel. Except for Daniel. Once again, he is the only one. And just a really quick sidebar, I think one of the elements of this story that is so interesting is chapters 1, 2, and 3 all occurred in a very short time span when Daniel was a teenager. And chapters 5 through 12, they all occur when Daniel is very old, just before his death. Chapter 4 is the only event that is recorded when Daniel is a middle-aged adult, somewhere between the age of, let's just say, 30 and 50. We don't know for certain, but we know that this is the only recorded event in the middle of Daniel's life. The only thing that Daniel thought was worthwhile to communicate to all of us over the first couple years and then 70-year period elapses and then we pick up later on. This is the only story. And may that be an encouragement to, for all of us because I think sometimes we look at stories in the Bible with all these miraculous signs and wonders and we go, man, I wish my life was like that. But I wonder if for Daniel, at this point in his life, he started asking questions. Like, is God's favor still upon me? Is God still doing a good work in Babylon through me? Is he still doing good work 
Am I still favored in his eyes? Am I still being faithful? Because it seems to be a bit of a dead season between his teenage years and his late 80s. And yet God is still on the move. And one of the things that we have to recognize is if we want to be faithful in Babylon, what it will require is for us to show up day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, being faithful in the small, mundane, ordinary things. And Daniel sandwiches this story between all the miracles in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then all the divine wonders and dreams that we're going to pick up and see chapter 5 to the end of this book. One story smack dab in the, mir- in the middle, and what is it? A story of conversion, the greatest miracle of this book. The greatest miracle of this book is this story. And Daniel wants to highlight that. He wants you to see that and to feel it in your gut. And for Nebuchadnezzar, he still hasn't forgotten the miraculous encounter with the fiery furnace, but things were just going so well, right? Yes, defeat is difficult, but success, success can be fatal. And that is a principle that might be hard for us to understand, but we have to understand it in our bones. The way I put it in your note sheet is this. Even all the miracles of God cannot contend with the pride of our own human hearts. With the pride of our own human hearts. Pride and hubris continue to lead him away from God no matter how many dreams, no matter how many miracles he encounters and sees with his own eyes. See, it might take the power of God to perform a miracle, but it takes the radical grace of God to take a heart of stone and to turn it into a heart of flesh. And the great miracle of this book, the meat between these two buns of this story, is this one, the conversion of a hardened heart who comes to see God for who he truly is in repentance, and he bows down. Let's pick up at verse 8. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is also called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I see. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and, it t- and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in the branches. From it, every creature was fed. But then from here, it takes a darker turn. We see that the tree is chopped down. That's verse 14. And then the stump remains, but the tree itself will be bound to the ground like a beast of the earth. That's verse 15. And then it has a mind to match, the mind of a wild animal, verse 16. And we read of the reason of this in verse 17. Look at this with me. It says, 
Uh, all this will happen so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. So we still live in a world today filled with powerful people, do we not? Strong people who by all appearances seem to have life by the tail. And we even read in this that he says that everything in his home was going well and everything in the palace was going well. So that's his home life, that's his professional life. On all sides, everything is going well. Family is good, life is good, work is good. By all appearances, everything is good but he's still far from God. He is still far from God. And because of that, there are still unsuspectingly, he is still unsuspectingly running toward a cliff. And sometimes God will extend a crisis, not just as an act of judgment, though oftentimes it is, but also and more importantly, as an act of mercy for them to see God for who he truly is so that they make a U-turn before they come to the cliff. That God longs desperately for those who are lost to come to know him for who he truly is so that he can have a relationship with them. See, people faced with conundrums like this have, have far too many friends who will do one of two things that they think are well-meaning but oftentimes lead them in the wrong direction. So here's the way that I put it in your note sheet, comparing Daniel's faithfulness to the unfaithfulness of well-intended Christians. The first one we see from Daniel is that he has a tender heart as opposed to what we have been calling for the last few weeks, cultural separation. A tender heart versus cultural separation. See, there are many followers of God who seem to delight in the idea that the ungodly are finally getting what has been coming to them. They deserve this in light of everything that they have done. When the wicked or the ungodly experience catastrophe and their life is burning to the ground, we don't step in with water, we watch them burn because they deserve what they're getting. And then to make matters worse, maybe at times we will use religious language to justify our actions. And we fail to see that perhaps God has extended an olive branch for them to see in the context within which they might be receptive to a gospel proclamation. That you're heading in the wrong direction and God is calling you back to him. But if we ultimately see these people as our enemies, we will never be in a position to share with them the good news of the gospel, even as going gets tough. Even as they experience hell on earth. If we are not tender-hearted toward them, we're gonna lose our witness, we're gonna lose our opportunity. And in this story, who would blame Daniel, right? Who in their right mind would blame Daniel if Daniel decided, I want nothing to do with Nebuchadnezzar? Like, after all, this is the man who ruined his life, who presumably killed his parents, who castrated him, who destroyed his temple, who exiled him for life. He has quite the rap sheet against Daniel. And I think Daniel has every right, if he wanted to, to hold a grudge. And yet, what do we see? Look at verse 19. Daniel says this, his heart is soft. He says, my Lord, 
if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. It's strikingly similar to Jesus' words. If you are taking notes, take note of Luke chapter 19. When Jesus comes before Jerusalem and he begins to weep and he says these words, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. What's the even you? Why does he say you, even you? He's talking about his enemies. The Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the laws, those who are opposed to Jesus. If even you would know what would bring you peace on this day. He weeps, he sheds tears for his enemies because he knows that the tender heart of God is that he desires that none would perish, that all would come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Daniel has that same heart. And so Gateway, if we want to thrive in Babylon, then we must recapture the tender heart of God for the world that he loves. To recognize that we are primarily called to be witnesses, not warriors. To be witnesses of everything that God has done. And if you want a revival, if you want God to heal our land, if you want a great gospel movement to occur in your seeing during your life, the greatest thing that you can do is to bear witness to what God has done in your life. And for them to see Jesus for who he truly is. That is the way that we change a nation. That is the way that we impact the lives of the lost, whether they be friends or enemies. We bear witness. But there's a second way that Daniel shows us how to be faithful, and it's similar to the first. Daniel shows us that he is always willing to give an honest word as opposed to what I'm just calling a, a face-saving placebo. An honest word. I shared with you already that the natural inclination of our hearts is assimilation. We want to go along to get along. We don't want anyone to think negatively of us or uh, the things that we might say. And so the natural inclination of our heart as a result of our sin nature is to go along to get along. But here's what we see with Daniel. He even contemplates this option, doesn't he? Essentially, what Daniel says is, please, Nebuchadnezzar, don't make me interpret the dream. Why? Because who in their right mind wants to give a negative message to the most powerful person on the planet? Because what happens if he decides to shoot the messenger as opposed to the message? And so he says he's, he's perplexed for a season. That's what scripture says. He begs, he pleads with him, don't make me share this story with you. Don't make me interpret this dream. It's bad news. And Nebuchadnezzar says, don't be worried. Tell me the truth. What is the story all about? But I think we learn a principle here, even with Daniel, that fear is often the greatest enemy of a faithful witness. Fear often leaves us silent. Fear often causes us to have good intentions with respect to sharing the gospel message that we hold in our hands, but then hide it under a basket. Because after all, we might say things like, what will they think of me if I say that? How will it affect our relationship? How will it affect workplace dynamics? How will it affect Christmas or Thanksgiving dinners when we get together as a family. I can't say that. I can't do that. 
what happens if they shoot the messenger? And so we recede and we hide. Daniel shared these concerns. Take courage. He had the same concerns. But in the end, Daniel provides a very clear model that all of us are called to emulate as we bear witness to God. We must be willing to share the bad news even if it comes at the expense of them shooting the messenger and not the message. Because the message is too good to be left unshared. Do we believe it to be God's power unto salvation? Is it the greatest news the world could ever know, or isn't it? Because if it is, we have to say in our heart of hearts, I gotta share it. Even if it brings tears to my eyes, I have to have a humble heart and I gotta share the news. I must share the news. And interestingly, did you notice, if you look at the story, we never find out what Nebuchadnezzar's response was to Daniel. The next thing we're about to read is 12 months later. There's, there's no telling us how Nebuchadnezzar responded. See, that's the point. God doesn't seem too interested in telling you how he responded. The only question is whether or not we will share. Whether or not we will share. So then what happens? Pick up with me at verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said... Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Notice the pronouns. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like the ox Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and he ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird." And so we see here that God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent, and actually much more than that because we've been following these stories for the last four chapters, miracles and wonders that God is doing something significant during this time in the seeing and the hearing of King Nebuchadnezzar, and yet he still has not given his life over to God. And as I shared with you, we don't know this for sure, but presumably decades have passed since uh, chapter 3, since Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire. There's a huge gap between 3 and 4 and between 4 and 5. This is happening in the middle years of Daniel's life. And at one point, finally, Nebuchadnezzar crosses a line and God says to him, you've been walking in disobedience long enough long enough. And again, we have to see, it's not just an act of judgment, though it is. It is also an act of mercy for Nebuchadnezzar to see God for who he truly is so that he would turn and worship God and see God for who he is. 
Look, we can't miss that the king went mad precisely at the moment when he made that pro proclamation uh, on the roof of his house, right? Look again at the pronouns. I'm gonna read it one more time to you. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? It's the 90-pound statue all over again. My, me, mine, me, 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 my, my, my. It's all about me. And as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, even though we don't build 90-foot statues, we do the same thing in our own hearts. We say it's all about me. It's all about my plans, my goals, my aspirations. And God says, no, it's not. No, it's not. It is all about pride. So what is pride? I wanna, I wanna give you some tools to identify whether or not you have pride in your own heart right now. It's at least these two things. Number one, pride is a failure to see that all good things come from God above. All good things come from God above. Like, Nebuchadnezzar, do you really think that you did all of this, right? Every talent you have, every breath you breathe, every ounce of strength you exert is no less than a gift from God. It's all a gift from God. And that's hard for us to acknowledge because we love the story of a self-made man or woman who just pull up their bootstraps, right? We, we look at stories like Elon Musk or Tom Brady and we say, wow, look at them. Look at the, look at the empires that they've built. But let me ask you something. Who gave the brain of Elon Musk to Elon Musk? Who gave the deflated footballs to Tom Brady? I mean, the strong arms, right? Who gave them those gifts? Did not God? What did God say to Moses? Who made man powerful? Did not I? Or he says a little bit later, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is, not, is it not I? Am I not the one who gives everything that all good gifts come from me? Pride and hubris lead us away from this reality. Number two, pride is the failure to see that everything you have and everything you are will pass away. And once again, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is actually in an even more dangerous place in chapter four than he was in chapter two. Because in chapter two, he was worried about losing something. He was actually becoming more aware that he could at any moment lose his power, lose his strength, lose his authority, lose his kingdom. And that filled him with dread. But in chapter four, he is secure on all sides. Everything's going well. Everything is fine. Everything is good. And that leads to his d demise. That leads to hubris and pride. And so maybe, just maybe, some of you are here right now and you might go out on the top of your roof or out on your deck or out on your backyard and you might say, man, look, look at the empire that I've built. Look at my career. Look at my aspirations. Look at my plans. Look at my family. Look at my retirement savings. Look at everything that I've built, my empire. Man, I'm good. And look, look right here. In that moment, maybe God will have to take those things away for you to see him for who he truly is. Maybe, just maybe, God in his mercy, not just in his judgment, but also in his mercy, will have to take those things away for you to see him, that he is sovereign, that he is in control. Yes, he is the giver of all good gifts, but he will take the gifts away if you don't recognize who the giver is, and it's mercy. 
It's mercy. He loves you too much to let you revel in all the gifts that he has given you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you for who you truly are. And we see that on shining display in this story. I put it this way in your note sheet. The heart of God is this. God desires to make a worshiper out of Nebuchadnezzar. He desires to make a worshiper out of the lost. He desires to make a worshiper out of you and out of me. And so yes, Nebuchadnezzar's pride had to be brought low by God's power. But you have to ask why. And the reason why is so that praise would be brought forth through Nebuchadnezzar's lips as to the praiseworthiness of the God that he serves. That he would see God for who he truly is. But first he has to exchange the glory that he has given himself. Me, 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 I, 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 I. And he has to exchange it to the glory of God. It's all about you. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. He is sovereign over all. And he is worthy of praise. Even the very breath that I breathe is a gift from God. And what occurs in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, in a very dramatic way, mind you, is no less than what needs to happen to you and to me. This needs to happen to every single one of us. We need the same. So how does the story end? I think this is the coolest part. Look at verse 34, but again, before you read this, remember this is the same Nebuchadnezzar who burned some kings and cut others into pieces. The same Nebuchadnezzar who ransacked the temple. The same one who exiled the Judeans and the Israelites. The same one who threw Daniel's friends into the fiery furnace. That same Nebuchadnezzar wrote these words. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever and ever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people on the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Here's all the evidence you ever need to see that God can take even the hardest of hearts and turn them toward him. And that leads to repentance. And that right there is the end of the story for King Nebuchadnezzar. So far as we read, it's the last words that he will ever utter is worship to the Most High God. So I want to do something a little bit different this morning. As you walked in, an usher gave you one of these cards. And this is something that we've been doing as a church for the last couple of years where we have been encouraging everyone who is a follower of Jesus to begin praying for, investing in, and invite those who are far from God. That you would consider writing down four names, up to four names, of family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors, 
maybe even enemies, who are far from God, and that you would commit every single day to praying for them and looking for providential moments for God to work in their lives. Maybe they don't even know who Jesus is. They don't know the difference between the book of Job and Job. Like they just don't know anything about scripture. And the opportunity that you have is to introduce the gospel to them. Or maybe, just maybe, they're more like King Nebuchadnezzar in chapters one, two, and three, where they've, they've seen a thing or two about Jesus. And they know a whole lot about his followers. And yet, for one reason or another, that has not led to repentance. One of the things that I find so interesting about this story is considering where Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are today. Where are they? Well, if we believe our theology, then they're in glory, making much of Jesus. Hand in hand, heart in heart, looking before the throne of Jesus and with tears in their eyes, worshiping. And I have a sense that Nebuchadnezzar, as he is there, has deep and profound gratitude, not only to God, but to, to God's servant, Daniel. That he would say, Lord, thank you so much for Daniel, who didn't write me off, who didn't treat me as his enemy, though he had every right to do so. In light of everything that I did to him, I've ruined his life. I hated him. I treated him as the enemy. And what did he do? With a humble heart, he stepped in and he showed the love of the Creator to me. Who are the Nebuchadnezzars in your life? I have my list. I have family members on here. I have friends. And I want them to know who Jesus is. It's the greatest gift we could ever give. So sure, you might have concerns. You might say, if I share, what, what's going to happen? What will they think of me? What will they say? Will they shoot the messenger? And with all due respect, I just don't think those questions are going to matter 10,000 years from now. I think the only question that matters now and then is what if I don't? What if I don't? I love the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. Even good old Neb. Even you. Even me. Even your friends. There is hope for them. But what it will take is a movement of God, a, a miracle of God, to take a heart of stone and to turn it into a heart of flesh. But what we believe, if we trust our theology, what we believe is that when we pray, the Lord shows up and he does miraculous things, far more miraculous than going into a fire and being unscathed. More miraculous than that but taking a heart and turning it to Jesus. So I want to pray for you. I want to pray for this opportunity for you. If you haven't done this before, consider writing down these names, praying for them every single day, and see what God does. Let's see. 
You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.